Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today's extremely special guest is a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford University and is a very well-known, impressive science communicator on social media. He presents phenomenally well and is able to articulate complex ideas in easy-to-understand ways. Ben, Ryan, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for that very special introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> I've been following your work and I've seen your posts and the way that you articulate things. And it's very impressive to say the least. So I usually like to start out the podcast with getting to know the guests a little bit better. Ben, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? What made you so fascinated with the human brain? Yeah, first off, thanks again. That means a lot. I initially started off uh, my earliest schooling was in psychology and I was mostly interested in like why people did the things they do, what pe- made people different, why people behave different ways, especially in social settings. I was always interested in that. And uh, the thing that eventually tipped the scales and made me start focusing more on the brain rather than behavior was actually a nightmare where I had this horrifying nightmare, woke up and just laid in bed for hours thinking about how in the world it was even possible. And the, just the this magnificent organ inside of our heads that does all these many things 
but in particular how just remarkable that experience was and that my brain could be both generating an experience and living through the experience simultaneously all within the same organ seemingly separately though where i didn't know i was generating it and i just laid there and was just like holy cow the brain is just so amazing so i switched to neuroscience and i ended up merging those two things where i got to study why people behave the way they do in social settings but from a neuroscience standpoint and so i did my phd research studying autism spectrum disorder and the neurobiological changes associated with it and now I'm studying empathy. So it's been a wild ride and I've had a great time. Fascinating stuff. Everything you talk about, like on social media and even just a little bit about your background there just really excites me because I think we share some similarities with that deep level of curiosity into understanding the brain. So maybe then we can touch on neuroscience, like this term that's, that's thrown around quite a lot. What does a typical neuroscientist actually focus on? Yeah, there are so many different levels to neuroscience that can be studied. And I just gave a talk for this conference about neuro, about this question of like, what is neuroscience? And my first slide, I say 0% of neuroscientists study the entire brain because there's just way too much. And there's all these different cell types. There's all these different brain areas. There's all these different neurotransmitter systems, different behaviors, different models. We have mice, rats, fish flies, humans, monkeys. So there's so many different ways to look at the brain. And pretty much what a neuroscientist does is you can think of them like a chef where not cooking brains, but that you go to, if a chef goes to school, learns the general principles of cooking with time, they find a specialty. And eventually if they open a restaurant, they're not going to open like a all you can eat buffet where they might, but they're probably not going to open that where they're serving everything. They're going to find a niche that they focus on. And it's the same for neuroscientists, where we start off with the overall general principles, and then eventually we continue to specify further and further until we end up either on a specific brain area. Sorry, my dog is apparently going nuts, but we end up on a specific brain area or a specific behavior or a specific system or even a specific molecule. There are many neuroscientists that spend their entire careers studying one out of a 10,000 proteins in the cell and make an entire career out of it. But the process really is all the same, no matter how you're approaching it or what you're studying. It's really just all about using the information we have to inspire new questions and inspire hypotheses about what could be happening and then designing the most effective way to ask that question experimentally. And so we use the tools that we have at our disposal to design extremely well-controlled experiments to ask those questions. And it's that's really a lot of the training of becoming a scientist in general is just learning how the tools work, gathering the data about how the brain works or what we already know to inform our predictions and then inform our experimental design. And so that I've been doing this for 10 years or so now, give or take, and just, there's just so much to learn. There's so much out there. And, but like you said that we both share that curiosity and there's just, you got to be curious in science because if you're not, then you're just working like crazy. I find a lot of joy in, in coming up with the questions, designing the right puzzle pieces of an experiment, and then seeing what the results show me. Yeah. Super fascinating. And also as part of that, Ben, is I know we briefly touched on before the autism side of things. I'd love to, it was that an area of focus, like one of your earliest areas of focus. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah. So I joined a lab for my PhD that studied the genetic basis for autism. And, and there is a very strong genetic basis. So it's estimated that something around like 60% of all diagnosed cases of autism spectrum disorder are associated with genetic changes, right? Some sort of change in the in some genetic factor. And so what we did in my PhD was basically we went one by one pulling out let's say there's a thousand or let's say there's a hundred genes that are known to be associated with autism. And I should say gene mutations. So it's been shown that if you take 10,000 people who have autism spectrum disorder and you screen their genome, you'll find that mutations will pop up in these same hundred or so genes. And so we wouldn't do the screenings to figure out what genes were involved. We would do the screenings to figure out what those gene mutations were doing in the brain. And so we would pull out one at a time and perform these studies in rodent models to identify what changes were occurring in the brain and whether or not those changes were associated with the, the changes in social behavior. I'd be curious to learn more about some of the models that they use to assess rats' autistic behaviors. So do you want to explain some of those? Totally. Yeah. And I actually love talking about this because people are always curious. They're like, wait a minute, you're testing autism in a mouse. So how, like, how do you even do that? And we found very clever ways to do it that we're taking a mouse social interaction, which is very much different from a human social interaction, but we're looking at it in a way that's broadly applicable to any species. So here's one of the setups that we use. Picture, let's say, I'm just going to use this for a second. So picture, this is a, a box that you're looking at it from the top and it's divided into three chambers. So there's a divider here and there's a divider here and the mouse can pass through in the middle. So it's just a three chamber apparatus and on one chamber, there is a mouse underneath a cup just hanging out there. And they're under a cup just so that they can't move around. On the other side of the chamber, the opposite chamber, there is a an object under a cup, like a Lego or like a wooden block or something like that. And you put your mouse that you're interested in into the middle and you just let them explore for 10 minutes or so. And what we find is that in general, mice will prefer to spend time in the chamber where the other mouse is. They're inherently social. But if there's a if they're carrying a mutation in one of those autism linked genes, they might prefer to spend time with the wooden block, or it'll be like more of an even split. So there's a reduced social preference. We say, is that are you? Afraid, is that the novel object recognition or something like that? So that's another one. Yeah. So the one I just said is the three chamber three chambered social preference test, and I actually have a protocol on that paper. It's one of the ones that I use a lot. But novel object is different. But yeah, that's another one that we use for looking at like short-term memory in mice. There's a lot of these tests. It's pretty cool. So then I look, I, I find it so fascinating as well. When looking at human to human interaction, for example, like a typical person that has like traits of autistic like symptoms, like what may that present as in humans? Yeah, I mean, it's super variable. I mean, it's autism spectrum disorder for a reason, but generally people, those on the spectrum sort of just report like challenges in communication. They have trouble in a variety of things. It could be like reading on other person's social cues or facial expressions. It can be like trouble with expressing themselves properly, but the way it's diagnosed is actually through a, an observational test where the clinician will ask questions and have a conversation and put the person through a couple of tests. And so it's unique in that it's diagnosed through observation versus self-report versus like 
when it comes to depression, something like that, major depressive disorder, that's your diagnosed based on self-report. You're reporting, oh, I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling maybe suicidal. The psychiatrist isn't judging you as depressed. It's internal. And it's, I think there's, autism is a controversial topic. At least it can be in that case, thinking about whether the person assessing you has the right to judge your state versus you reporting it yourself. There are a lot of controversies in this whole autism clinical area, but yeah, there's, and the interesting thing too, is that it's not just about social, what they're called social deficits is the diagnostic term, but also repetitive behaviors. And to be diagnosed with autism, you need to have both, which I think is really interesting because they're very different types of behaviors. And there's, in my mind, not a very clear explanation as to why those two things would come together neurologically. Yeah. So what you're saying there is there needs to be a combination of that social deficit plus repetitive behaviors. Mm-hmm. Would that repetitive behavior, could that manifest as, I don't know, continuing to listen to the same song over and over or things like, or like being able to focus on a task for four hours straight or something? It's potentially, yeah. It's more of a common thing is like arranging, and we're often talking about children here as well. It's a neurodevelopmental disorder. So it's usually diagnosed when the people are very young. And I say that because I'm about to talk about toys, but for example, arranging toys in a specific order and like just going over and arranging them and then, you know, coming back later and knocking them down and rearranging them, something like that, where it's just a repetitive behavior that doesn't necessarily seem to serve any purpose. Okay. And when you're looking at the specific genes, the genetic deficits or mutations, was there a link there between something and GABA, like the GABA dysfunction? Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. Are you just curious about this or are you alluding to my specific research? I'm curious because I've I've personally experimented with a bunch of GABA-based supplements and compounds that have improved my social skills. That's where I'm curious. Oh, that's, that is intriguing. Yeah. Let me give you like the one minute breakdown of my research. My main PhD project was looking at a one specific genetic risk factor for autism. And given this is all in mice, so whether it translates to humans, completely unclear. But we found that in these mice, in this specific model, and I will also say it's this disclaimer, this is only true for this one genetic risk factor for autism. It's not true for all of autism. But we found that they had a a deficit in GABA signaling in the prefrontal cortex, which is, it's funny that you bring that up, but the sort of net result of that was that the overall activity of the brain area of the cells in this brain area were dysregulated where, so GABA is an inhibitory, and I'm saying this, sure, you know, this for your audience, GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, meaning it, it decreases the activity of cells. And so since these mice had less GABA, there was less inhibition. And so the cells were more active. So we found that these cells were hyperactive, which may sound like a good thing. You might be like, you're unlocking like super brain, right? But it's actually not. We want, the brain cells want to be within like a homeostatic range of activation. And in this case, it was too much. And we found that when we restored the function of those GABA synapses and brought the brain cells back down to a sort of happy, you might say, level of activity, the mice became more social, even with the genetic mutation. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's super fascinating. I mean, just sharing my own personal experience, like I've been told by a number of people that I have autistic-like symptoms based on, the way, based on the way that I interact with people or like the way that I am able to just focus for hours on end and things like that. And when we're looking at like the GABAergic system, like for example, taurine, which is amino acid, I'm sure you're familiar with taurine, 
which is highly GABAergic and promotes GABAergic neurotransmission, blocking glutamate signaling. I find that helps me to socialize in the same way that, for example, ethanol, alcohol would do. We know that both like ethanol, actually that just brings up another point. Is there any, have you seen any correlation between ethanol or alcohol consumption and I don't know, like autistic symptoms at all? Like social behavior? I don't think so, but I also am not very well, I'm not very familiar with that literature, but I was just thinking about that, you know, as a scientist who is, I'm still doing this type of research, studying autism on this level. And I was thinking about that recently. I was like, I wonder if we took mice and we put them in that three chamber where they could hang out with another mouse or hang out with an object and we gave them alcohol would they become more social? And I looked it up and someone had done it. And I believe that they did become more social, but I was just thinking about the fact that like human beings as a whole have decided that they Friday, Saturday night, they have the time to themselves and they have decided that they would like to spend that time drinking alcohol and being around people and just socializing with strangers. And I find that really interesting that it's that rewarding that the world has collectively agreed to do that with their free time. And sorry, a little bit of a divergence there, but it's a good no, point. That's funny as well. Because I remember there was looking at, because I'm a naturopath, like naturopathic background, we look at like how gut health and the microbiome can influence like neurotransmitters, predominant, most of our neurotransmitters, like serotonin receptors and serotonin productions produced in the gut. And then I remember looking into like, how different short chain fatty acids, there's a really strong correlation between elevated levels of propionic acid and like autistic like symptoms, things like that. With the neurotransmission stuff, I'd like to segue into the depression theory and serotonin. I know you've spoken extensively about this. What does the current body of literature suggest as far as the correlation between serotonin and depression? Yeah, I'm curious about this question because I think that you're trying to get me somewhere. And I'm perfectly fine going there. So I'm wondering if it's worth, instead of answering your question directly, if it's worth me backing all the way up historically and talking about this, the serotonin yeah. theory of depression, because yeah, yeah. I just wrote an article about this. So let's do it. All right. I'm probably going to get some things wrong, but let's go for it. In like 1950s or something like that, uh, people were looking with science medicine and science of medicine were looking to treat tuberculosis. And so they developed this drug and gave it to people, gave it to patients, and they found that people were becoming, oddly enough, more happy after they took it. And so whatever, it wasn't working for tuberculosis, but it was definitely helping their mood. And they turned out to be MAO inhibitors, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, which increased overall the levels of, of monoamine, so neuro, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. And they were curious about why this improved mood, didn't really, I don't know, I can't remember how the research track led, but later on it was found that like those drugs, uh, another class of drugs called SSRIs, which had the same effects, but only on serotonin also produced the same effects on mood. And so at that point they started to think, okay, maybe the effects are occurring primarily through serotonin. And maybe if boosting serotonin increases mood, then maybe low serotonin is the cause of depression. And they just kind of went with it. And there was also some data that showed that in people who died by suicide, this was like really early on. I feel like this was also like the 60s or 70s. People who died by suicide, they showed lower levels of 
some serotonin markers in the brain. And so they confirmed the hypothesis and they just went with it. And then I think from there, I wasn't around for it, or at least old enough to see it all. But companies that were selling these drugs for as antidepressants started selling everyone, hey, it's very simple. There's a chemical imbalance. Low serotonin causes depression. We got this drug that'll boost serotonin, make you feel better. And then over the following the subsequent decades, a few decades, more and more research started coming out where it was just becoming more and more murky, where it seemed like this marker of serotonin signaling was not actually changed in people with depression and this one and that one. And maybe there's something there, probably not. And it just started to fall apart, but there wasn't really any clear conclusion until last summer when this paper, this group of scientists went through the literature and did what's called a meta-analysis where they went through and pulled all the data from existing papers and combined and summarized it. And they were looking specifically at data implicating serotonin or low serotonin in depression. And they published it and they shut and they said, look what we found. Basically all in all, the evidence is very weak, if at all existent. And generally we can safely say that low serotonin is not the cause of depression. And since then, there's been a little bit of pushback. Some scientists have said there, there are some criticisms of the paper. Um, they did leave out a few studies that do show low serotonin depression. But overall, all in all, the way I look at it is regardless of whether there's evidence for it still, if low serotonin is the cause of depression or a cause of depression, it's probably only the cause in a subset of people where it's not reproducibly detectable in people with depression. So it's not at least a very strong, robust signal. And this, this was a whole like big controversy and what you were alluded to. I made a few posts about it, talking about people misrepresenting this and stuff. And the big frustrating thing for me about it was that people were taking that as a way to say that SSRIs don't work. And I'm not, and that's funny. Cause then if I start to say this, people are like, you're a big pharma shill. I, the effects of SSRIs are not especially impressive on treating depression. But the reason that worried me was because for anyone who's taking an SSRI and hears, oh, SSRIs aren't good for me or aren't helping my depression. Why the heck am I taking this? And they just stop taking it without consulting their doctor. There can be severe withdrawal side effects. And, uh, and those can really impact mood and potentially lead to things like suicidal behavior. So I was just worried about that. And that's uh, mostly what I was trying to target when I made my posts. But yeah, so it's a mystery what's going on. There are some theories and I could I could opine on that a bit, but yeah, so that's the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We did a good job at obviously summarizing that. You alluded to, there are some other theories, maybe some other potential pathways that you think may be, are you saying you think there's other pathways that may be like more responsible for eliciting some of the symptoms of depression in a sense? Yeah, there's gotta be something going on. If it's depression is unquestionably a disorder of the brain. And if and there are measurable, what we would call phenotypes, but there are measurable signals of depression in the brain. For example, lower reduced volume of certain brain areas, like specifically the frontal cortex. So the brain, those brain areas are actually a bit shrunken in people with depression. And there are some other things as well, but there are like genetic risk factors. And there's certainly some changes in the brain that are occurring. It's just whether the root cause is low serotonin, but all in all, regardless of whether the low, the cause is low serotonin, if someone takes SSRIs and it boosts their mood, then there's no denying that enhancing serotonin signaling 
is improving their symptoms. And it's probably targeting the systems in the brain that are at the root cause. So it doesn't like low serotonin doesn't need to be the cause for boosting serotonin to be the solution. And so, you know, and there may be better solutions out there for sure. And there's a lot of research being done on psychedelics and stuff now, but the, it's funny because there are a lot of people who like attack SSRIs and say that psychedelics are the solution instead. But what's funny is that psychedelics act on the serotonin system as well. So it's, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. I don't know. It's just, it, there's always controversy. I'm always caught in between people arguing in my comments and I'm just like, everyone stop. Yeah. We can all agree. It's yeah. all the same. Well, we're about to go there. We're about to go there in terms of the psychedelics. Obviously you've done quite a lot of research in that area. First of all, I want to start out with what research around MDMA, obviously it's not Technically, I mean, it has psychedelic-esque properties or like it's more of empathogenic. Um, but did you want to maybe let's first of all focus on MDMA because obviously you've explored that in, in detail. What was the existing literature suggesting as far as MDMA therapy? What was the primary area of focus? And what are the future studies that you're really excited to see on MDMA therapy? Yeah. So MDMA is a drug that I'm really interested in because as I mentioned, I'm interested in social behavior and what makes people do the things they do in social settings, what makes people more outgoing than others. And MDMA has this amazing property of making people more social and making people feel more connected. And it's just super interesting because if you look at MDMA and you compare its structure to methamphetamine, it's very similar. And like methamphetamine, it also activates dopamine signaling in the brain, but it's got some other unique properties. It also acts on like serotonin and norepinephrine, and then it seems to be indirectly acting on oxytocin. And as a result of this chemical mixture, whatever's going on, this bouquet of chemicals activating altogether, people just feel really socially connected. And, but it also has this just general, like euphoric kind of property to it. And what, so answering your first part of your question about the literature on the clinical approach or clinical applications of MDMA, MDMA has been implicated in treating PTSD. And it's very interesting, this whole idea. As an aside, I just want to note that psilocybin, LSD, ketamine, MDMA, all of these psychedelic compounds that are being explored for clinical use uh, and like psychiatric use are similar to SSRIs in that they're best if paired with a therapy session. And like Rick Doplin, the founder of MAPS, which is this organization that's been trying to get MDMA legalized for clinical use. I was just in a Iceland with him at this conference and heard him talk. And he said, MDMA is not the, the product. The therapy is the product that they're selling. MDMA is just there to help people access these deep inner traumas and, and I just always say that whenever I'm speaking about this, because it's important for people to realize that psilocybin might be great for treating anxiety when in those research studies that you read on the internet, but that doesn't mean that if you take psilocybin and you sit on your couch and you watch Rick and Morty, that you're going to be, it's going to cure your depression. So it's all about the, what they call set and setting. So going back to MDMA, the sort of premise is that if you take MDMA in a setting where you are with a therapist that you trust a little bit, at least, first off, it enables you to feel more connected with the therapist where you can trust them and you can really explore deeply through talk therapy, the feelings that you have. But second, because it makes people so euphoric or it makes 
everything in general more pleasant, it allows people, especially with PTSD, to explore these deeply held traumatic memories that may normally be very difficult to access and confront. And so you might, let's, if you experience something traumatic in early life, like maybe a sexual assault or something like that, or if you're a soldier and you experience trauma at war, those things, when you typically, if they come up in your mind, might just make you feel terrible. And immediately you just, no, I'm not thinking about that right now. And it may became, it might become so natural over time that you suppress those memories. And so with MDMA, it makes even the most horrible things easy to grapple with. And one of the other presenters at Iceland, he gave, he told this story about him and his buddies and they're sitting around and they're high on MDMA in college. And they're like, wow, I feel so good. And one of them says, wait, let's think about the worst thing we can possibly think about. Let's think about our mom, our mother's dying. And they all sat there for a second. They go, it's not that bad. It just has this way of making even the worst things imaginable, not that bad. And so that's the premise with PTSD is bringing it out, making it, giving you the ability to work with it in your mind and in the presence of a therapist that you trust. Um, and so again, it's like the therapy is the thing. And if you were to do MDMA at a rave, you're not going to have the same experience, right? You might have a great time. You'll probably be dehydrated, but you're certainly not going to feel better about the that trauma unless you have it paired with the right experience. Here's a quick little message to all men listening into today's show. Do you want to double your energy levels, boost motivation, and increase your focus? If so, you may be interested in my epic men's energy program I've recently launched called Limitless. Now, Limitless is an exclusive 12-week program for men who want to go from feeling tired, unmotivated, or burnt out to highly energetic, driven, and focused. Within the program, I will analyze your own unique biology and lay out a fully personalized health protocol so that you can finally unlock peak physical and cognitive performance. Over the 12 weeks, you will have direct access to me to ensure your results as well as the chance to join me live twice a week to ask me anything relating to health protocols and discover cutting-edge men's health info to keep you at the top of your game. Now, spots in this program are extremely limited. So if you're interested in finding out more, make sure you go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash limitless program to reserve the next available call to see if you're a good fit. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash limitless program. You'll also find this link in my bio on my Instagram profile and also my YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. And as far as the actual, the session goes, I imagine the frequency, as far as like how often they'd be using the therapy, we'd be, we're not looking at like back to back day after day. We're looking at what, maybe once a month, like what's the treatment protocol usually? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it may be as little as one session, but if there are multiple sessions and I was going to say, don't quote me on this, but I'm being recorded and this can be on the internet. If anyone's curious about this question for the real answer, I would go to maps, maps.org, I believe is their website. It's just maps. It's multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. I believe that's what it's called. And they should have their like protocols and everything on there. But yeah, the idea is that 
regardless of how many sessions it is, you would have a few sessions with the therapist beforehand to get comfortable, to do some screenings, to introduce yourself. Then you would have a MDMA session that lasts like all day. As far as I understand, it's like at least a couple hours. And then the next day, I believe you have another follow-up session sober to go back over things. And then if you were to have another session, it would be like a little bit down the road, at least a week, maybe two weeks down the road. I want to say, I can't remember exactly. I want to say they did four sessions, two weeks apart or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And then as far as like the other applications, this this sort of future direction, other potential applications outside of PTSD, the empathy slash socialization aspect. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. So MDMA is classified. If you look up, if you look up the word empathogen, which is as defined is a, any drug that enhances empathy or social connection, MDMA is always the first one that comes up, which is funny because the actual scientific evidence showing that MDMA enhances empathy is very like limited, but for anyone who's ever taken MDMA, it's quite clear that it makes you more empathic. And it's like, this definition is really based on all these anecdotal experiences. So it's not that the scientific evidence says no, MDMA doesn't enhance empathy. It's just that there's not a whole lot there yet. And uh, so this is actually what I'm studying myself. I'm, I can't talk too much about it because it's not published yet, but hopefully it will be soon. But we're studying, again, in mice, we are studying the neural circuits that regulate empathy and that allow MDMA to become, or to make us and mice more empathic. But the as far as the applications of this all and where MDMA could come into play, there are some thoughts about MDMA as a therapy for autism. But again, this is a very controversial topic just because of the idea of proposing any form of therapy for autism can be very controversial. And I'm admittedly not sure how I feel about the idea of MDMA for autism, but the idea that MDMA enhances social connection, enhances, enhances empathy and social connection and sometimes empathy are things that are often affected in autism, those dots all line up. So whether or not it will become a real thing, who knows, but I've always joked, half joked, you know, I'm in the U S and I've always said MDMA enhances empathy. It should be mandatory that before political debates in the United States, all the participants have to take MDMA and just, instead of attacking each other, let's just hear each other's ideas and just have an empathic conversation. Let's talk it out. Yeah, that would be pretty funny. We briefly touched on the oxytocin pathway. I've seen some research linking, yeah, the fact that it can agonize certain serotonin receptor and downstream agonism of that 2A receptor can lead to even, sorry, the serotonin 1A receptor. Because I've been really fascinated with that particular serotonin receptor as it relates to anhedonia or blunting mm -hmm. of that pleasure response. There is a particular herb that I'm, there's actually an article that I've written that's gone viral on the internet about a particular herb called ashwagandha and how that can elicit a state of anhedonia similar to what we can see in some of the um, post SSRI disorders where they have the after SSRI treatment, they end up with a blunting of that pleasure response and ashwagandha, one of the suspected mechanisms, and this is a million dollar question because no one has figured it out yet, but what we suspect is happening is that ashwagandha is desensitizing that serotonin 1A receptor, which is the same pathway that a lot of the SSRIs actually work on that can actually desensitize the 1A 
serotonin receptor in the RAF nuclei. And it's like the autoreceptor and it's like the gatekeeper. So if you desensitize that, it leads to an abundance of serotonin. But as it relates to, yeah, sort of the anhedonia side of things, I'd love to get your thoughts. What sort of research have you uncovered within the realm of anhedonia? I know we're switching gears a little bit, but yeah, as it relates to anhedonia, what do we currently know? Yeah, I'm not sure. That's a bit outside of my field. There's one paper that I could reference, but I can't remember any of the details about it. I read it recently though, and it had a very confusing solution where or conclusion where there was like a bunch of brain areas involved and it was like super complicated. So unfortunately, I don't really know, but I'm curious about this. So what you were talking about is that ashwagandha with repeated use can lead to an anhedonia type phenotype? Yeah, yeah. This is something that's like reported in a number of people that have used like this particular herb is there. And luckily I was this sort of, I guess I was like one of the first to identify this issue because I was like, because I'm like heavily testing a lot of products and also like always scaring like what people are discussing and reporting and stuff quickly identified that a lot of these individuals started displaying like almost like psychopathic tendencies where they're just like their emotions are just blunted they're so numbed that they're just like nothing really excites them they just feel like they've lost that emotional depth and even the there's like a phrase known as there's like consumatory anhedonia versus anticipatory anhedonia and the anticipatory anhedonia is like the it's like blunting the excitement leading up to something that should be exciting so so let's say friday night we're going to the football for example and you're during your work from like friday morning you're like anticipating going out that friday night and it's that build up of pleasure that ashwagandha can like scrub that out and like you just you don't get that excitement leading up to pleasure sort of thing Oh, that's awful. That's one of my favorite emotions. I think that is my favorite emotion. Emotion is anticipatory excitement. Oh uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Way off topic, but I always find, don't you, do you find this? I find that when I'm excited about something, I find it more pleasurable to be excited about the thing than to actually experience the thing. Oh, hundred percent. That's the, that's anticipation of a holiday, for example, can oftentimes yeah. be. <laughs> and then the holiday comes in, you're like, oh, what do I do with myself? Oh, yeah. I, I need to plan my next holiday. Yeah, the I'd love to. So the empathy side of things, let's discuss that a little bit further in terms of some of the models that we use. You mentioned that the chamber one. Are you, I don't know if you're able to share this here because you, you said you're conducting studies on MDMA and empathy, but do you have an idea like which models you're planning on using for those studies? Yeah, we do have a model. So there's a model of empathy in mice, which is, there, there's a few of them, but this one is particularly interesting and it was also developed in the lab that I'm currently working in and it's called the social transfer of pain. So basically to anthropomorphize it and make it human, just picture the way you feel when you see a guy get kicked in the groin, right? If you're a man, you might feel discomfort if, or if you're a woman, Imagine, especially if you're a mother, imagine the way you might feel watching a video of someone going through labor, right? Giving birth, just that when you identify someone else's pain, it can be very uncomfortable in yourself. And you can sometimes take on this like kind of discomfort or pain 
anyway, not really pain, but it's just, I don't know. It's something along the lines of that. It's a discomfort. And so what we've not, we, not me, myself, but a former lab member of mine, her name is Monique Smith. She now has a lab at university of California, San Diego. She discovered that if you have mice hanging out and one of them is experiencing pain, whether it's withdrawal from alcohol, or if it's an actual like arthritis type pain, the other mice hanging out with that mouse will start to act like they're in pain as well. And when we use this as a model of empathy, because truly as defined empathy is the when you identify someone else's state and then like model that state in a way. So like when you see someone get kicked in the nuts and you feel that discomfort, like that's actually empathy. You're modeling their state. That's why you're feeling that level of discomfort. And so in the mice, that's how we use, that's how we model empathy is whether or not they, they adopt the other animals pain and distress just from being around them. Yeah. Interesting. Even you just describing that, like visualizing a guy getting kicked in the balls, like I actually started feeling a bit of pain down there. Yeah. Isn't it strange? It's, and just to go there, not to, not into the balls part of this, but into the pain part of this, there's studies showing that if you watch someone experiencing pain, whether it's like being like poked in the hand with a needle or being shocked with an electrical stimulus or something like that, the, there's a bunch of brain areas that are activated but some of those brain areas are actually overlapping with the brain areas that are activated by pain itself. So some level seeing someone else experience pain is in the brain, similar and in some ways identical to experiencing pain itself. So that might be why just the idea of that sucks to think about. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. There's definitely some, I can definitely relate to that. It's in my, it's funny because in my talks about empathy, I'll throw on the board this big picture of someone's hands getting slammed in a car door. And it's not like violent or graphic or anything like that. It's just a car door closed on someone's fingers. It looks just like this. And when I pull it out, the crowd goes, oh, and it's just funny because you're just looking at a picture. That's all. No one's hurt here, but you feel this distress. And it's really a remarkable thing. What about some other, like just in general, like some other really cool or crazy experiments, scientific experiments that you've seen inducted in the realm of it can be any area but like maybe within the realms of like social behavior any other weird like experiments that you've seen conducted yeah there's a bunch of cool stuff regarding what what i was just talking about regarding the empathy for pain all right as i mentioned viewing others in pain is uncomfortable and it, it makes people feel in a way as if they're in pain if you give someone Okay, so let's just to make this sim- simple, let's assume that for the, for this description, you are experiencing pain, I am observing it, okay? If you give me painkillers while I'm watching you in pain, I will report your pain is less severe and my discomfort is less severe. So by blocking my ability to experience pain, you block my ability to empathize with your pain. Now, going another step further, if you give me a placebo pill, sugar pill, and you tell me that it's a painkiller, that will also block my empathy for your pain. So there's so placebo painkillers can and also placebo painkillers block my pain. So if you give me a fake painkiller and then you zap my hand, I will report it as being less painful. Um, so placebo painkillers not only block your own pain, but also your pain for your empathy for others' pain. And then this gets really complicated, but in the brain, there are these when we when you take something like a morphine, an opioid painkiller, 
it acts on, so it's an opioid and we have these opioid receptors in our brain. So our brains naturally express opioid receptors and produce natural opioids, endogenous opioids or endorphins. And if you give me a placebo painkiller, so you give me nothing, but as I mentioned, I will feel less empathy for your pain. But if you give me that same placebo painkiller and you give me a drug that actually blocks those opioid receptors, those endorphin receptors, it will block the placebo painkillers effects, which suggests that for the effects of when you give me a fake painkiller and you tell me it's a painkiller, my brain activates its own naturally existing pain relief systems, which allows me to truly feel less pain and less empathy for your pain. It's just this whole like sequence of experiments is just like one of the most remarkable things I've ever found in the literature. I think it's awesome. What about the equal and opposite? of pain, which is pleasure. So is there any observing, almost like observing other people's pleasure? Could we then? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's, so when you see someone experiencing pleasure, there's a lot of different things you can experience. So if you like that person and they come up to you and they're like, oh, I got a promotion. You're probably feeling good for them, right? You're happy. But if you hate that person and they tell you you got a promotion, you're like, I don't want to hear this from you. Leave me alone. And on the converse, if someone you like is in pain, you definitely feel their empathy for them. But if someone you hate is in pain, you might not feel empathy. You might feel indifference. And I just posted a video recently about this, that there's a study that did that. And they actually found that only in men, not in women, when viewing people that they don't like in pain, men's brains actually showed a sort of reward response to people. And then they found that the men who reported wanting more revenge on the people that they didn't showed a higher reward response to watching them get shocked, but with a physical shock. That's just in men, but then what was the, so the response in women? Women showed, basically they showed the same like empathic response where they felt bad for the people getting shocked, but they didn't show the reward response even if they dislike the person. Interesting. Yeah. I, they, I, what's oh, up, man? I was going to say, like, how do they, with most of the empathetic or empathogenic effects of, for example, psychedelics, have they been on men and women, the studies? Yeah. the Most of the studies, they should have been all done on men and women. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is a good question though. And a very unknown area is, and if anyone's out there that wants to do research, this is a good area to explore is the sex differences of psychedelics. There's the field's pretty young. It's generally for any given research field, sex differences is like one of the last things studied, which is terrible. It's really just because, I don't know, historically, most of the research subjects have been men. And so we know less about women. And so it's harder to understand sex differences because there's not that much literature out there to explain it. There is now, there, there, there is in general, but yeah. So for any given field that's evolving, one of the last things people look at or seem to look at is the differences between males and females. No one's really gotten there with psychedelics yet. So it's wide mm. open. When it comes to some of the like substances, I know you mentioned MDMA, you've briefly mentioned LSD, psilocybin. As you were discussing that, I was trying to like map out in my head, if we were to put all these different substances on a gra- on the table and looking at the individual receptor sites, like serotonin yeah. 1A, 2A, 2C, 2D, 
all that sort of stuff. It'd be interesting to see, like, there would definitely be some crossover, like agonism, antagonism on different receptors. It'd be interesting to see, like, a beautiful representation of that for us brainiacs. Yeah, totally. No, there's, those are out there, I think, as far as, like, we don't know everything. We know, like, the primary mechanism of action. So, for example, what's really interesting is that psilocybin, DMT, and LSD all have the same mechanism of action despite producing very different effects on experience. They're all 2A, serotonin 2A agonists. So they all bind to and activate the serotonin 2A receptor. But it's interesting because for anyone out there who is listening and has tried two or all three of those, again, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, then you know that the experience is very different. And even in the published literature, if you look at the scientific studies of what people report, it's different. They also have different like time scales and everything, but so it's, there's a big question there. If these are all acting on the same receptor, then why do they produce different types of effects? And there's, it's probable that they're acting on other similar receptors as well, and not just 2A. But then MDMA, as I mentioned earlier, it acts on dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine, and ketamine acts primarily on glutamate, which is through a very complicated mechanism that in the end of it all, basically just enhances the amount of glutamate release occurring in the cortex, which drives neuroplasticity. What did I leave out? I think that's, those are all the ones that I usually think about, at least those are the mainstream ones. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a friend who actually was over in my place the other week, Dr. Jack Aloka. He's, uh, he's pioneered quite a lot in the neuroscience field. He's developed like a, he's actually developed a sleep tracking software that I think Stanford might be using polysomnography. They're actually mm -hmm. using sleep tracking software. And he mentioned that because he was filming a documentary, he had intravenous DMT for 45 minutes straight. On him? Was, yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, they had him all like electrodes, everything like strapped on him and identifying his response. I think that will be published in the next year or so. But what we see a lot in some of the research papers is like, they often they oftentimes like will quote something known as the mystical experience. You see, mm -hmm. and they, you want to elaborate, what does that actually mean? Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of scales that are used in science for assessing and scoring the psychedelic experience. And yeah, there are a few of these terms that are funny, like mystical experience. Another one that's thrown around a lot is oceanic boundlessness, which is just a feeling of just, just how else can I say it? Oceanic boundlessness. It's just that it, the world is your oyster to explore. Just you exist everywhere. But yeah, the mystical experience, what a lot of people describe on psychedelics, specifically on things like those two A agonists, like LSD and psilocybin is these like really spiritual type interactions. And a lot of the time people seem to be visited by a report being visited by like spiritual deities and stuff like that. And having these godly interactions it's, and seeing people from their past who have passed on and just all sorts of things like that. And it's just, I don't know, this always bends my mind when I'm thinking about it. Like the fact that there exists a receptor in the brain that when you poke it, 
just makes you see God. It's a, it just, it's just amazing to me. And yeah, the mechanisms of how it's going to take a while to figure out. That's definitely an exciting space. I'm curious to know for yourself, Ben, the future, like the next maybe one to two years within the realm of neuroscience, obviously empathy is a big focus area, social behaviors. Like what are you really excited to see more research on? Is there a particular application for a certain maybe drug or thing, something like that? What are you really excited to see more research on or potentially even pioneer yourself? Yeah, I don't want to give too much away. And I always get afraid talking about it, but I'll talk about it because I think it's so cool. I personally, being a, sci- a neuroscientist and being very active on social media, I'm personally very interested in the intersection between social media and social neuroscience and how people behave socially on, on places like TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and stuff and how these complex interactions that we have in person have been dissolved into these 2D text-to-text interactions. And that does seem to change the way we interact with people. We People seem to be less empathic. People seem to be more quick to jump into fights and argumentative. And so a space that I hope to explore is that, is how social media affects the way we engage in interactions, how our brains engage in social interactions, because we do it every single day. There's no research on it. That will be, I'm very excited to see that research when you either like reshare it or publish it yourself. But otherwise, I think we've, we've covered so much. I know we've jumped different topics. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been great. Can I ask you, Ben, if my audience wants to connect with you, follow your content, Instagram, YouTube, please let them know where they can find you. Yeah, so I am on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, and I suppose Twitter. I'm pretty much on all of them. So my name is Ben Ryan, and I go, I abbreviate it to B Ryan. So it looks like brain. If you just search B R E I N on any of those, I don't think there's other people with that name. So hopefully you should find me. But you could also just go to my website, which is my name, benryan.com, and I have my social media on there, my scientific papers, free to download, no paywalls if you're interested. And I also have free resources on there for students in science who are interested or who may be interested. Perfect. I'll make sure to leave those linked in the show notes. But yeah, otherwise, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's really been a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs>